There we are. There we are. <laughs> Happy Tuesday, everybody. Hi, everybody. It's Christmas week. Yes. Back to John's Gospel. Oh, it's Tuesday. It's noon. <laughs> it <laughs> right? is. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. anyway, yep. So, we're glad that y'all are here today. Where Everybody's getting ready for Christmas. Coming up on Saturday. That's right. Lauren and I are doing the liturgy. We're, 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 we're twin liturgists. At the eight o'clock traditional service this year, so that'll be fun on Thursday night. And um, let's see what other newsy things. I failed to put a slide in today, but next week we don't have class because my Sunday class, Monday class, Tuesday class, right after Christmas they're not meeting. But on January second, everything's back. Everything in. comes back. Everything comes yeah. back January second. Most of the church is kind of. Uh, yeah slow next week if if open at all but yeah. the business office will be open to get your last minute yeah contributions there's a lot of there's in. a lot of giving a lot of stock and other there, things that come in at the end of at the end of every year so i've got a question a christmas okay. question for you okay why do you think that john yes. decided not to put anything about jesus birth in his gospel well i personally i think there's Two, several, couple of possible reasons. One that he was aware of Mark and Luke. or Matthew and Luke, particularly Matthew and Luke. Okay, but secondly, he really does right. It's just different. He doesn't tell about the birth, but he begins with the pre, you know, the 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 transcendent Jesus, the the, the Word who has always been. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and then he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so I think in John's mind, that is, that's the, the story of the incarnation is the story of Christmas. Because we get caught up in a lot of pieces of that. But the most important piece is that the God who created all that is took on human flesh and dwelt among us. Okay. In the person of Jesus. Okay. So that would be my answer to that question. Okay. We just never read, you know, the <laughs> the uh, Christmas story by John on Christmas Eve. Or... But on January second, that pa- the opening passage from John is one of the preaching passages for okay. January second, which I'm going to talk about. And hey, lead... so all of us who have been doing this class, we kind of have. A... You're prepared. We are. Prepared. You are ready. <laughs> So don't miss it. <laughs> you are ready. So um, yeah. So so we're gonna be back in, back into John today. You know, I keep talking about Pearl Hall. It's it's really. Kyle told me on Sunday that he's not quite done with what he has to do down there to make us to make it available for for streaming. And of course, we're always keeping an eye on the COVID viruses and their variants and all that may also factor into when we actually resume down there. Cause I don't want to start down there and then Have somebody stop it. and say, well, maybe we should stop for a while. Yeah. So we'll see. I don't know. This is working this works. This adequately. Works. Yes, it does. And it's been Christmas. And so people have been busy, but the podcast, I'm, we're going to be, I'm, we're going to be a 50,000 podcast downloads before we know it. Wow. Isn't that amazing? It is. That is amazing to me. It is. I don't do anything to them. There's no like cute little intro music. No. I don't clean them up. No. I don't take out the goofy parts. No. I just take the audio that we that we create here together and up it goes into the cloud, into the ether. 
wherever that stuff is. So, all right. Well, want to open us in prayer? Sure. Why not? It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. Grateful to be gathered around um, like this. Even if it's online, we're still here. We're still together. We're still we're still making our way through the Gospel of John um, and coming to a hopefully a deeper knowledge of, of who your son Jesus is because uh, that is really what we want to do that's just is to come to know Jesus better and so that we might be um, ever more true disciples of his and and reflect him ever better in our own lives all this we pray in Jesus's name amen amen, amen. so Patty's gonna scoot around, scoot around and inside. where we are I better get there myself Somehow I didn't do that. So we are in the Gospel of John. We are in the 8th chapter, and we are at the 48th verse. Which is the middle, it's in the middle of a section where Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and other opponents of his. And he is being very direct with them in this. He, he is saying to them basically that... Um, Abraham is not their father, that the devil is their father. You may remember that from, from last week. And so um, uh, his point being that if they really knew God as they should, as they, they would know Jesus as they should. They would understand Jesus as they should. And, and as we'll see in the coming section and story, um, they are responsible for their blindness. They're responsible for their blindness, which surely implies that for Jesus, their blindness is willful and something that they are choosing. And why would they choose to be blind? Because I think like too many people, their position and power and status is tied to an understanding of the world and of God and of God, how God works in this world that does not include Jesus. Um, but only, huh, interestingly, revolves around them. So, okay. What is it? We're, we're, I think what I want to do today is just plunge right in to verse 48. Okay? And this is chapter? Chapter 8, verse 48. We're just going to plunge right in there. Because I, I, I do want to get to chapter 9. Because it is, and we will, because it is this great, great story. So Jesus is in this back and forth deal with his opponents, right? So the Jews, these are the Jewish leaders, remember, answered him and they said, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon possessed? You can see how things are heating up here, right? He's called them children of the devil, basically, that <laughs> the devil is their God and their father. And now they're accusing him of being a Samaritan and the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. And on top of that, demon possessed. Wow, okay. So Jesus says to them, I am not possessed by a demon. I honor my father and you dishonor me. You see, just, just again, let's understand what Jesus is doing in all of these potentially confusing, sometimes repetitive sections that he and the Father, and he will state this clearly, that he and the Father are one. And so, and so, 
when they dishonor Jesus, they dishonor God. When they honor Jesus, they honor God. So Jesus says, I'm not possessed by a demon. I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, the Father, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Well, you know, if you're a person who is overly consumed with reading the Bible literally, you've got to be careful. That's a mistake the Pharisees are about to make here. Because they, at this they exclaim, Now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died. The prophets all died. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. So did the prophets. Who do you think you are? You can just, you can just see the, the hostility rising and, and the voices rising, at least on the part, not on Jesus' part, I suspect. I suspect he might be one of those people who when you debate him and argue, arguing with him, he gets quieter and quieter, which is a really good technique. He gets quieter and quieter. And so Jesus, you know, um, and of, uh, of course, why does Jesus say, whoever obeys my word will never see death? Because Jesus is bringing God's victory over sin and death. Death, does, death will not hold those who put their faith in Christ. We, we, we had Charles Stokes' memorial service last week. Right, Patty? Last yes, week, the 13th. Yeah. Just a wonderful service. So, Charles. Charles knew that death wouldn't hold him. Yes, he is separated from us now. He is separated from Louise now. But death will not hold him. His victory over sin and death has been won, not by himself, but by God. That's what Jesus means. Of course, that's what he means. Jesus himself will die, right? We, we just have to, as Christians, we have to remember that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We do not grieve as the world does. We grieve the separation, but we know that it is only for a time, maybe a very long time in our reckoning of things, but it is still only for a time. So Jesus, they, they say to him, who do you think you are? And Jesus replies in verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. You can't, you can't really glorify yourself. Glorify is a social word. It's about what other people see. It's about, it, it has to include others. It's not an, it's not an individualistic sort of word. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Because you, how is that going to happen? How is God going to glorify Jesus? Glorify is enabling everybody to see that Jesus is who he claims to be. How is that going to happen? How is it going to happen that, that everybody's going to see the truth of Jesus? The cross is the climax of the story, but that, that's not where people see the truth of Jesus. They see the truth of Jesus. His vindication is in the resurrection. It is when the Father raises him, resurrects him, 
that people see. Oh, yes. He didn't just die another would-be failed Messiah. He was who he claimed to be. And if you have any doubts who Jesus claimed to be, just spend time in John's Gospel. John wants you to get that crystal clear. Um, there's no room for people to say, well, you'll hear sometimes people say, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, that's just, that's just, just not true. <laughs> so you can see it in the Gospels over and over. I don't have time to step through them all. Well, I think we're going to come to one of my favorite little moments today. Um, but yeah, so back to verse 54. Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, this is back to Jesus' point, if they knew God, truly they would know Jesus. Though you, They can claim him all they want, but that doesn't mean they know him. And you can just imagine how angry this makes people, Right? Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And like now... You could just you could you could just imagine people's heads are spinning off their shoulders, right? They're all agog. They're all aghast. They're all confused. They don't understand. What do you mean, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing your day, Jesus, and saw it and was glad? So they say to him, "You're not yet fifty years old," as he's probably only in his, you know, uh, thirty mid thirties, depending on, you know, where we are in this. Yeah, mid-30s, let's call it. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham, who lived, what, almost two millennium before. This is the talk of a crazy person, unless it's true. It's the talk of a crazy person, unless it's true. And why do we ascribe truth to this? Why are you and I reading it 2,000 years later? Because Jesus was resurrected. If he had not been resurrected, he would not be remembered. There were many who were put to death by the Romans as messiahs or rebels. It is the resurrection that is the proof that any of this matters, that any of this is true, that indeed all of this is true. So they say to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham, dot, 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 you crazy person. Then Jesus says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. So, before Abraham was born, I am. That's a, a word of existence. That is the name of God, the ego a me. We talked about this weeks ago. I am. Um, let me see my get to the right keys here. Okay, so these are the seven I am statements where you have I am and then you have I am what? Well, I am the word of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. 
there are other I am statements that people disagree with about how to render, how to translate. And we've come across a couple that are just translated, I am he, like, you know, are you Jesus? And he says, I am he. But the translators are right. This is not one of those places where it's just a simple statement that Jesus was making. He's saying, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus, Jesus is preexistent to his birth. So just let's talk about that for a second, theologically. Because I think sometimes the way things are written, and even the way something like the Apostles' Creed is written, in comma, punctuated, can lead to some confusion. Simple statement. God has always been, is now, and always shall be. God has no beginning and no end. Simply has always been, is now, and always shall be. God is triune. In God's unity exist three persons. Each of them fully and completely God, though not all of God. They are not parts of God. Each of them, they're not a He's, there, there, there's not a third of God in each of those parts. No, each of them is fully and completely God, though not all of God. In the, and in the end, it is, I think it is true that our words in our two-dimensional images fall short of expressing this tri-unity, this triune God. But this triune God has always been, is now, and always shall be. And the persons who comprise this triune God consist of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This community of three comprise the triune God, and they have always been, are now, and always shall be. And what we are about to celebrate with Christmas is the second person of the Trinity, fully and completely God, right? Taking on human flesh. Right? So the Son always has been. The Father always has been. The Spirit always has been because they comprise the triune God. And, and wow, is it easy to get this wrong. There are better and poorer ways to try to express this triunity. We call the Trinity sometimes, right? Or the triune God. Uh, much easier to get it wrong <laughs> than to get it right. And so we, we have to be careful coming to it. And, and you can even come toward understanding the Trinity by talking about what you don't mean and beginning to carve some things away. But no, we don't mean in parts. We don't mean that there was once the Father, God, God, God was present as the Father, and now God is present as the Son, and then God is present as the Holy Spirit. That's called, actually has a fancy name called, called modalism. God comes in three different modes. Sort of Old Testament, Jesus, and then Pentecost. And no, 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 no. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always been, are now, and always shall be. And thus, the three in this community of perfect love, 
one for another, in which there is both beloved, both lover and beloved, they share one will. They share one will. In their divine nature, they share one will. Of course they do, because there is one God. God isn't um, what, what 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 schizophrenic, yes. <laughs> split split personality, something that is that is how God is. And so, of course, when Jesus starts talking to people about this, it it they don't know what to make of it. And I'm 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 sympathetic at, at that point to their confusion, because here he says. Abraham, basically, Abraham, you know, saw me. Abraham knew me because Abraham, why? Because Abraham knew God. Is Jesus God? Yes, so Abraham knew God. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. Before anybody was born, Jesus could say, I am. All things were created in, through, and for Jesus, Paul writes in Colossians. All the fullness of God was made to dwell in Jesus, which all these ways you find across the New Testament to express this incredible, incredible, incredible claim. And why and what is the ground of our confidence in the truth of these claims? The resurrection, which makes us take, enables us to take all of Scripture seriously. So, he says, very truly, the double amen again in the Greek. Amen, amen. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Well, at this, the crowd picked up stones to stone him. They're just, they can't stand it. You know, who talks this way? This is blasphemous. Wait till we get to chapter 10. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds in another one of those moments where it's like he's there and then he's not. He's there and then he's not. I don't know what's happening in that moment. I sometimes wonder if, if in that moment Jesus steps into another dimension, steps into the kingdom of God and then steps back out again. I don't know. I know as John writes it in a very mysterious way. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So, any thoughts or questions about all of that? <laughs> no. Um, I think if we were in a classroom together, there would be. I think so. <laughs> I think we're having a little, some problems today on Are Facebook. Are we? Yes, on the, uh, on the desktop. We're coming in and coming out. And I know there are a lot of people online and... Uh, the numbers just keep sort of dwindling down. Yeah. I think people are losing us and coming and Maybe. finding us. Except, and... except Susan Faulkner said that never happens to her, even though she appears to be popping in and out. So, I don't know. We'll see. Whatever. I just know how many people, yeah. are, you know, that I, I yeah. can see are online, and there's yeah. a whole bunch. More. But yet the number then, is just because showing this it could it, it could just be the counter's wrong. It, it so could be. could just I be just, that. You know? You know? Yeah. It's all complicated. Yeah. We don't understand any of it. And Linda's saying it's pausing now and then. Well, great. That's, well, That's what's happening because it, it's stopping and then it's going. So we're sorry. Susan one, says hers is all good. Yay. 
from Candice. She's asking me, is our definition of the Trinity in the Bible? Good question. Okay, yes. It is. It comes from what you find throughout the New Testament. That's how it comes. That's how it comes to be. It's sort of like you you come across passage after passage where Jesus, let's just take this one, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Or John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And a few verses later, he writes, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you realize that, that as far as the writers of the New Testament are concerned, Jesus is God. And then if you look a little bit further, you find that they speak of the Holy Spirit in that way. And then you come to understand that why the Christians very quickly started worshiping Jesus. And the Christians were all Jews for the first 10 years. They so quickly come to worship Jesus. And we'll see that even here in this section in John's Gospel coming up. And so when you look at all these different pieces together, the only conclusion you can come to without abandoning monotheism and the Christians, early, early Christians were as committed to monotheism as anybody was. Actually, nobody was other than the Jews. They were as committed to it as the Jews were, okay? Was to, was to come to understand that in God's very being, there is, there, there is this community of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so at the end of Matthew, when Jesus says, go baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it, it becomes a, a Trinitarian statement. So that's how it is, Candy. There isn't, there isn't a nice, neat little paragraph that I could send you to. Um, in, during the time of the Reformation, there was a man named Erasmus who created a New Testament, and at the request of Rome, he he put a nice, neat little statement like that in at the end of I think it was First John. Um, and because they just wanted this nice, neat little statement, <coughs> but of course it wasn't in the original. It hadn't been. It was just added in like about fifteen hundred A.D. or something. So you you really have you it comes out of the whole flow of all of the New Testament writings. And when you when you put when you put the work into seeing what the New Testament has to say about Jesus, you end up with what's called a very high Christology. Because you can't miss the divinity of Jesus. And so then you're confronted with, well, are we going to be polytheistic? No, because Paul writes, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. None of the first Christians were, were abandoned their monotheism in the least. They just, under, they, they just came to a deeper understanding of, of, of who God is in God's inner being. And, and, and here's, the, here's the magic to it. You see, when you come to understand that in God's very being, there is this community of three, lover and beloved, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Father loves the Spirit, and around and around, you grasp why John would write in First John, this letter he wrote um, late in the first century, that God is love. And that it's not a sentiment, it's a statement of fact. 
God is both lover and beloved in God's very being. You understand why it is that the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love others. Then it all ties together. It all ties together. It, it is that truth about the nature of God is the truth about that that is brought to us by Jesus, that God is triune, is um, um, really the, the, the one thing we learn about God in the New Testament that we didn't already know. We, we knew, going back, back to Exodus, that God was merciful and faithful and gracious and kind and so forth. But you don't know until Jesus that in God's very being there is this community of love in the three persons comprising the triune God. So the words always leave us short. I understand that. But there we go, Candy. That's it. That's how it came to be. In a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to this story. You know, there's a lot of long sections of John that are just speeches by Jesus and conversations and stuff. And, you know, it's kind of nice sometimes in John's gospel to get to a little bit of little bit of action. I like action. How about you, Patty? I love action. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. I do. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so chapter 9, verse 1. So we're just, Steve, uh, uh, Jesus is still in Jerusalem doing stuff. As he went along, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. So let me, we got to talk about that for a minute because their assumption is because this man was born blind that either he somehow before his birth or his parents sinned because their assumption is that in a situation like that, this blindness at birth is is a result of something they had done. That when you sin, right? Um, that, that if you have something bad that's happened to you, it is because you have sinned. This was a very common belief in the ancient world. Um, and it was a common belief among the Jews that if you saw somebody who had been born blind or been in a terrible accident, or had leprosy, or something else, that that affliction was because they had sinned, or their parents had sinned, or somebody had done something wrong. That's the book of Job. You see, when the book of Job opens, right, and you get the wager between God and, and, and Satan, and the world falls in on Job, not because he did anything. It's just a wager between God and the devil. And the world falls in on Job. And then his friends show up. Well, what do his friends do? Well, for a while they're quiet, but then they start to investigate because they want to figure out who had sinned to bring this upon Job. And, and nobody had. And that's what the book makes clear, that you can't say because somebody has some affliction or something has happened to them that they that it's a result of sin. Now, it is true that sin has consequences, usually, but not always, bad. 
right? People do get away with a lot in this world. Um, but the disciples are wrong here. They, they express the general sense of the day that, well, this guy's born blind. Somebody must have done something. This man, how could that be since he was born blind? But there you go. Or his parents, somebody did something. So I did find, actually, I found that one time years ago, I wrote about this story in the weekly Bible studies. In fact, I read it this morning. You know what, Patty? You thought it was pretty darn good. I did. I read <laughs> it. I said, this is pretty good. I like this stuff. Who wrote this thing? Anyway, I quoted a passage from N.T. Wright in it, and and he, he said, and uh, he introduces some of the ideas that I just said, but he said, we have to stop thinking of the world as a kind of moral slot machine where people put in a coin a good act, say, or an evil one, and get out a particular result, a reward or a punishment. Of course, actions always have consequences. Good things often happen as a result of good actions. Kindness produces gratitude most of the time. And bad things often happen through bad actions. Drunkenness causes car accidents. Sometimes. <laughs> right? But this isn't inevitable. Kindness is sometimes scorned and sometimes drunkards get away with it. And it's what Terence Fredheim says, there is, there is a moral causality in God's cosmos. This is the way God made things. But he says it, 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 it's not finely woven like silk, tight and perfect and logical. It's more like burlap, because guess what? Good actions don't always result in good consequences. And so, and bad actions don't always result in bad consequences. You, 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 just, you just can't end up, let yourself end up at a place where you think that that's how things work. And that's the mistake the disciples make here. And they would, of course, not be alone in their day. And let me tell you, they would not be alone in our day. In our day. So Jesus says to them, neither this man nor his parents sinned. With regard to the man being born blind. It isn't that they've never sinned, never done anything that would incur God's disfavor, but his blindness is not because somebody sinned, because it isn't how it, it works. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened, right? What's something good that come out could come out of this, so that the works of God might be displayed in him, because Jesus knows what he is about to do. You see? It doesn't mean that God had to make this guy blind, but God can make good things come from bad things. It doesn't make the bad things less bad. Patty and I are happily married, have been for a long time now. That doesn't diminish the tragedy of Patty's first husband dying of cancer at 37. That's just a huge, huge tragedy. The fact that God can bring good out of it doesn't make the tragedy less of a tragedy. Right? Mm -hmm. 
So he says this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Meaning, meaning that there's just, you got to be about the business of God now because the day's coming when, when we'll, we will be past that. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Right? So Jesus is saying, look, right now we're going to do this. We're going to do this. So, after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. And then Jesus said to the man, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So Jesus encounters the man. The disciples ask him about it. Jesus says, Nope, nope, it's not because his parents sinned or anything else. But God's work is going to be displayed now. And then Jesus bends down into the dirt, spits in the dirt, makes some mud out of the spit. And, and takes that mud and rubs it in the man's eyes and tells him to go wash himself in the pool of Siloam. And I have a map, of course I do. Steve, here you go. There's a map of where the pool of Siloam is. Remember the pool of Bethesda. That's where the crippled man, man who'd been crippled for 38 years was, that got Jesus in hot water back in chapter 5. Yes. Now it's all gonna, it's going to be a lot of hot water boiling again. But this time Jesus sends the man to the pool of Siloam to wash. And, and when the, the man washes his eye in it, washes his face in it, he can see. He can see. Can you imagine what that would be like for someone who had been blind from birth? Had, they had never seen anything, had never seen a color, never seen the sky, never seen a face. Don't you love those those videos that you see um, on Facebook or YouTube or on Twitter sometimes of a baby, a small child, a young child sometimes, who is fitted with a hearing device for the first, like maybe a cochlear implant for the first time, and they can hear. And they're crying and they're screaming because it's all uncomfortable and so forth. And then they turn it on. And the crying stops instantly, and the baby begins to glow and smile and laugh because the baby's hearing her mother's voice for the first time. It's just, they're just like the best videos. Every time they get me because I just, wow, of course. So the man went and watched and came home seeing, this is a grown man. This is not a child. This is a grown man. Now, verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen, seen him begging which would be the lot of a blind person. That's how they would survive. Begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Well, some claimed that he was. Others said, nah, he only looks like him. Why did they say, nah, he only looks like him? Because he was blind. And now he can see. Their explanation, what's the explanation for that? Nah, this isn't him. This is just as a look like. He just looks like him. The man himself insisted, I am the man. So their question, then it becomes obvious. How then were your eyes opened? And he said, the man they called Jesus 
And by now, Jesus is developing a reputation in Jerusalem, surely. The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Next question is the obvious next question. Where is this man? And the guy says, I don't know. Right? Because Jesus gives him the instructions. The man goes to Siloam. Jesus is on his way. The man doesn't know where Jesus is. He's lucky he even knows Jesus' name. Well. Have you ever thought about like one of these little like miracles that Jesus does? Why Jesus actually goes to the trouble of making the mud and putting it in his eyes and telling the guy to go do it where Jesus instantly could have just... Why do you think that is? I'm guessing it's to uh, see if the man has faith in Jesus to go and and wash his eyes. That would be a good reason. Um, It does involve the man, right? He has to participate. He has to participate in it. Um, It is something that would be more visible to others gathered around who would see this happening, right? Um, Perhaps, though I've never spent any time looking at something that would fit more with sort of what people might expect, how something like this would work in their day, because, of course, Jesus... I kind of have to do things in a way that pe- that people might be somewhat familiar with. But that's a good question, Patty. Good question, because that's what he does, and he does it more than once. He does it more than once. So now the man has been healed, you know, right? Now we can see. And we're about to find out that, well, we're back to the old problem that we had in Chapter 5 at the Pools of Bethesda, because this happens to be a Sabbath. <laughs> So Jesus is going to end up in hot water again. So they, this chapter verse 13, the crowds, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. No, 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 the Pharisees would say. Therefore the Pharisees also asked the man how he had received his sight. And the man said, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Man doesn't understand anything more. How could he understand anything more? It's just a a gift of pure grace, just an outpouring of mercy on this man. He doesn't need to understand anything more. He accepts it with a grateful heart. He was blind, but now he sees. He did what Jesus said. He trusted him, and he obeyed him, and now he sees. So some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. That's this whole Sabbath law. Remember, the Sabbath laws are really important. They're like the food laws. They were the boundary markers of God's people. And because they're visible to others, they become very, very important. Nobody can see whether you really covet what your neighbor has. Right? But keeping the Sabbath, keeping the food laws, yeah, people see that. 
So they become really important, and the Pharisees really hang on to them. So now Jesus is in hot water again. So they said, the man's not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath, the man being Jesus. But others ask, how can a sinner perform such signs? So the whole crowd is divided. Pharisees, the crowd, there's division. And they turned again to the blind man, and they said, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And so the man replied, and he's trying to come up, what would he say? So he tries to come up with the highest, most important title he can come up with. He is a prophet, right? Because that, you know, that's, that's Elijah and Elisha and Moses and Micah and Amos and Isaiah. He's a prophet, the man says, trying to accord as much honor to Jesus as he can come up with. He's a prophet, the man says. Well, verse 18, they still did not believe him. They did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. These people are looking for proof, proof, proof. Evidence, evidence, evidence. Right? And by golly, they're going to run it down. They're going to run this thing down they, have, they are not ready to accept any gift of grace, right? They're not ready to just simply take the testimony from the crowd and the man himself that, yes, he was blind, and now he sees because of what this Jesus had done. Now they're going to drag the man's parents in. And they say to the parents in verse 19, Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? And the parents answered, We know he is our son, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And then we're told his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's, this was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So John provides an explanation for why the parents don't stand simply firm behind his son and repeat for the Pharisees, what their son had told them about this man, Jesus. When they say, no, well, well, he, well, yes, he's our son, but as for this blindness thing, you need to ask him. And it is because they don't want to be, they don't want to be put out of the synagogue. The synagogue, the, the, the place where they would gather on Saturdays to pray and to read scripture in their communities, I mean, it was the heart of their community. It was the heart of their life. They don't want to be shunned. That's a good word. They don't want to be shunned and excluded and cast out of the synagogue and hence the community and hence the lives they've always known. And so they really respond out of fear as we are all inclined to do. Yes, faith chases out fear. But, wow, fear is powerful. 
I was when I was working on this, I thought of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was the German theologian who um, had to come to a crossroads in about Hitler because he loved his country. He loved his country. And it took a while for him to get comfortable with working against the interests of Germany. But he did, because he came to see the horrors, the horror that Hitler was. And so Bonhoeffer participated in the plot to assassinate Hitler. I'm not sure what his participation was. And he was condemned by the Nazis and hung. February of 45, I think, he was hung. But he acknowledged in his letters that his willingness to take such risks were not something that most people were equipped to do. I think that's true, you know? We're all fail, frail creatures in different ways. And Bonhoeffer could, could do this. There are perhaps other things he couldn't have done that other people could have done. Because we are frail creatures and the parents are simply scared. They don't want their lives turned upside down. They don't want their lives ruined, which is what we're talking about. If they are cast away, cast away out of the community that is the only community they've ever known, there's no there's no geographic mobility in their world no and so they they they're scared of the pharisees and so they end up saying no uh, yes 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 this man is our son but how all this came to be where now he's seeing when he was born blind which is true he was born blind you're going to have to ask him he's of age he's old enough ask him he'll tell you the truth so in verse 24, a second time they, the Pharisees, summoned the man who had been blind. And they, they, you know, they say to him, give glory to God by telling the truth. Because they're assuming he hasn't, right? And they say to him, we know this man, that's Jesus they're talking about. We know this man is a sinner. And how do they know this man is a sinner because he made this man see on the Sabbath. It's ex exactly the same problem as with the pools of at the pools of Bethesda when Jesus heals the man on the on the Sabbath. And it's just it's it, it's just the craziest idea, isn't it? Just the craziest idea that on this Sabbath day, this day dedicated to the Lord, that you can't heal. You can't restore people to wholeness, enable the lame to walk, or the blind to see. The Sabbath is the perfect day for that, isn't it? Whether you're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's the perfect day for that. It is a... It's, like I said earlier, it's almost a willful blindness that can't see. That of course. What does God want to do for all of creation? Read prophet Isaiah, chapter 60, 
66, the new heavens, 65, the new heavens and the new earth. What does God want for creation? Where is he taking everything toward renewal and restoration? So when you can restore sight to someone or restore mobility to someone, it, that's perfect for the Sabbath. It's not work that you avoid. You tell the person, oh, you got to be blind another day. Or no, you can't walk until tomorrow. We can't can't do anything until we get till, till tomorrow comes. I I that makes I just yeah. And so of course Jesus <laughs> sees that that isn't God's desire. But these Pharisees, these leaders, you know, they 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 love the position that they hold. They say give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. So. The guy who had been healed responds really pretty sensibly, just just down to earth, right? Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Right? The, the words which, were, which famously became part of the great hymn, Amazing Grace. I was blind, but now I see. It's all the man knows. He doesn't know anything about Jesus. He didn't really know what to call him. He doesn't know, he doesn't know, he doesn't know. All he knows is that he was blind, and now he sees that Jesus has given him this enormous gift. It's a gift not only of sight, but it's a gift of freedom. Right? Because the man is consigned to begging on the streets every day of his life to survive. He can't really contribute to his family, to his parents. But now he can. Because he was blind, but now he sees. And that's that famous, those famous words in Amazing Grace. This is where they come from, right here. Wow. In verse 25 of John's Gospel. I was, circle it, I was blind, but now I see. And that, you know, the as you know, the story of Amazing Grace is the story of a captain of a slave, slave ships who was turned 180 degrees by God and came to understand that he was blind, but now he saw. And it became a, an active force um, in the abolition of slavery. I was blind, but now I see. That's all the man knows. It's just, it's just such, verse 25 is just so wonderful. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You can just picture him. The spittle flying out of their mouths. They're getting angry and angrier because Jesus threatens everything that they that they truly hold dear. They would claim not to hold dear what they do hold dear. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Like if if an alien followed them around, the alien would discover what they really hold dear. And what they hold dear is not the Jesus stuff. What they hold dear is their position and their power and all the accolades they get from people. And that's what Jesus talks about in the Sermon of the Mount. In, in, uh, when, it, when he talks about prayer, 
Linda, Linda uh, Walto put, I think this story is perfect to be inserted at this time. The Pharisees were blind to his message. Oh, my gosh, Good yes. analogy. <laughs> yeah, well, you got it. And wait till you see what Jesus has to say to them. Oh, good. We're going to get there today. Because <clears throat> I got 15 more, 15 more minutes. 15. Count them. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. Wait, let me back up, back up, back up. Then they at verse 26. You could have 15. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And the man said, I've told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> and that throws the Pharisees. Uh, you know, so they hurled insults at this poor man who had been healed and said, you are this fellow's disciples. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, I guess he's getting braver yes. as it goes along. Now he says, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Um, I just want to say, <laughs> you know, I, I don't agree with, I don't think the Bible agrees with verse 31, but that's okay. The man, the man, that's the man's view. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this the Pharisees replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So they, they're not probably talking about original sin. They're talking about maybe his parents, his family. Is that what that means? They're just saying, look, you're born to sinful parents. You're steeped in sin at birth. It's why you're blind. It goes back to where we started talking about this, that if he's blind, then somebody somewhere, he's born into to sin, born and sinned in the womb. I don't know. Because no, I don't think they're talking about original sin. That's more of a Christian idea. But the best part is at the end of verse 34, when it says they threw him out. Yeah. <laughs> I think by that point, the guy doesn't care, really. Verse 35, so Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, so Jesus goes looking for the man. And he finds the man. He says, do you believe in the son of man? The fellow wouldn't really quite get this, okay? So the man asks, well, who is he, sir? Tell me so I may believe in him. Because this is coming from the man who had made, made the, the, the blind man see. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Again, Jesus identifies himself with the Son of Man, surely, surely the one from Daniel 7, who will be given dominion over all God's creation. And then the man said, how could he come to, this, to any, anywhere else? He says, Lord, which is a remarkable choice of words, I believe. 
I have faith. Faith has an object. I believe in you. I have faith in you. And then he worshiped Jesus. And notice that Jesus doesn't decline that worship. In the New Testament, when you run into occasions where Peter is worshiped, people fall on the ground to worship Peter or fall on the ground to worship Paul, they make them get up because, of course, they're not worthy to be worshiped. You and I are not worthy to be worshiped, even though some of us might think we are. Nobody on this call, I understand, this in this class, but Jesus, Jesus doesn't turn it away. That is a remarkable moment in John's gospel. The man says, Lord. He, earlier he said, I was blind, but now I see. Now he says, Lord, I believe, I faith, I trust. And he worshiped Jesus. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Now that is confusing, but it's about to be made clear. Okay? Well, some Pharisees who were hanging around, who were with him, hanging around as they were inclined to do, heard Jesus say this and ask, What? Because they get what he's about. He get, they get what he's talking about. Are we blind too? They get that Jesus is talking on a metaphorical level. That the Pharisees who can see the world around them physically are actually blind because they don't see the truth of Christ, right? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So clearly, right? So if you were blind, if you were really unable to understanding any of this, you would not be guilty of sin. That's what he says to the Pharisees, who are the most among the most learned in all of Israel. It's like when Nicodemus, the Pharisee, comes to see him. And Jesus basically tells Nicodemus, I'm astonished that you are a teacher of the law and you don't understand any of this. Here he says to them, if you were really, really blind, if you really, really couldn't understand what's happening here, you would not be guilty of sin. Which seems right, does it not, Patty? Yes. 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 Yeah. Yes. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. It's, it's, a, it's a willful spiritual blindness. Yes. That's we, what we afflicts the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. A willful spiritual blindness. They're choosing to not embrace Jesus. And why are they choosing not to embrace or understand Jesus? Because they are too wedded to their positions and power, the positions, I mean, their position in society, the views they've always held. There are lots of ways this plays out in the world. I think, you know, I know that we Christians can get frustrated when, when people you know, aren't interested in Jesus and the good news. And we often think it's because we haven't explained it well enough. 
or they don't understand it well enough, that if we could just explain it a little better, if we could just find the right words, that then they would, you know, come over to Jesus and, you know. And, but I don't think that's how it is. I don't think it's a lack of understanding in most cases in, you know, the 21st century world. It's a fact, it's that they don't, it, it's a lack of will. They like, they like things as they are. And Jesus challenges. Jesus upsets our lives. Jesus wants us to be different people than the world wants us to be. And lots of people want to live as the world lives. They get caught up in celebrity culture and they get caught up in money and they get caught up in all kinds of goals and everything else that the world sets for them. And so when somebody comes along wanting to talk about Jesus, no matter how effective your presentation is, they're not going to respond because they're quite happy to be willfully blind. To be willfully blind. They might even, they probably even know that there, there's more to this Jesus thing than they think. But but no, they're, what's the old, they're fat, dumb, and happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that gets to the truth of Christian apologetics a lot more than some people will want to admit. It's, um, people, a lot of people just don't want their lives messed with. Consequently, the times they are most receptive to hearing the good news are times of crisis. I've said before, this was something my mom always got wrong. Because she would sometimes refer to foxhole Christians, you know, oh, they just believe because they're in trouble or something. Well, you know what, what? Yes. Yes, yes, because they're in trouble, because they're in crisis, because they realize that they're not the masters of their own universe. Yes, that is why. And it's a good thing. It's a blessed thing. And it is true that there are those who will, you know, seem to embrace Christ in a time of crisis. And once the crisis is passed, they go on their merry way, you know, forgetting the name Jesus entirely. But there are many who who stay because they, they somehow God opens their eyes as with this man and they understand that as the years well not just as the years mount but I mean your, your life is sort of crisis after crisis of various kinds that's my that's my experience over 71 years it's just kind of the good times are laid right alongside all you know, all the troubles, and um, if you don't, if you if if you when you come to Jesus, if you if you walk away, then where will you be when the next crisis comes? So anyway, I I, I just think this the the story in chapter nine is clearly important to John right? 
because he spends a lot of time on this story. And the great gift of the story, I think, is really the blind man who says, I don't, I don't know who he is. I don't know whether he's a sinner. I can only tell you this. I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. Need a Christian understand all the ins and outs of Christian doctrine? No. Need a Christian engage in all of the proper Christian worship practices? No. Those are good things. It's good if you do. But is, is it necessary? No. There's only one thing that marks out the people of God. One thing. I wish more people on Facebook and Twitter would remember this. There's only one thing that marks out God's people. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Nobody is saved because they worship the right way. Nobody is saved because they go to the right church. Nobody is saved because they believe. Nobody's justified because they believe in justification by faith. No. Paul is clear. The badge of membership simply says faith in Christ. And sure, of course, we strive for all of the good things that go with that. We strive to live Christ-like lives and to worship in a good and honorable and worthy way and all the rest of it. But in the end, in the end, it's faith in Jesus Christ. So, there we go. That is, that, is to, to that is today's lesson. Four days before <laughs> Christmas. That's... And, yeah. And when we come together next week, you know what we... Not next week. Nope. Two weeks. Because I'm taking next Monday and Tuesday off. January 4th. January 4th. We will move to um, some more of Jesus' famous I Am statements because chapter 10 in the gospel is about the Good Shepherd. Everybody loves chapter 10. It's all about the Good Shepherd. I mean, And we'll talk about the shepherds of Israel. We'll talk about how shepherds were cared for. We'll talk about Psalm 23. And all of that will enrich greatly our understanding of what yes. Jesus is doing when he calls himself the Good Shepherd. Yes. Because even that is a claim to divinity. So, okay, Miss Patty, Alrighty. on this, what is the date today? 21st? 21st of December. So today's the first day of winter then. Yes. As we're marching toward a 75 degree Christmas day. The shortest day. <laughs> day of the year today. Huh. Yeah, yeah you're right. Shortest, shortest day, of, day the of the year. Okay. And we start then getting a little better starting tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> we start getting a little <laughs> tiny bit less. It starts getting a little tiny bit lighter. Yes. A teeny, teeny bit. Yeah, we've been blessed to take some trips up to pretty far north. We took a cruise a couple, about three years ago, up to the northernmost place in Europe, way up at the tippy top of Norway. We did. Tippy top is a technical term. The tippy, tippy <laughs> top of Norway to a place where it hardly ever gets dark in the summertime. No. You're way up there. Yeah. We'd walk outside the ship at 11 o'clock at night and it looked It'd like it was be, the middle of the day. Yeah, still be, still be day. That's right. Yep. Anyway. All right. Okay. Enough fun. <laughs> enough fun. <laughs> Guys, we wish you all a very, very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Because yes. we will not technically be here until January 4th. Scott's preaching on January 2nd at 9.30 and doing his class at 11 yes. and then we'll have our class Monday and Tuesday. Everything will be back to normal. But we certainly wish you a very, very Merry Christmas. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We love you guys. Thanks for hanging in there with us going on 
uh, in three months, this will be two years. Yeah, we started this in March 2020. Isn't that... like, April, like, like the first week in April, we started wow. this in 2020. Wow. Wow. So, so crazy. And here we are. Who could believe it? Here we are. It? Still doing it. Yeah. I got the same books behind me. Yeah. The same wife beside me. The novel coronavirus. <laughs> do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and all the different <laughs> variants we've gone through. But we really do pray that you all will stay very, very healthy and, and safe. And let's just close in prayer. Okay, Patty. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we gather together every Tuesday. Lord, we thank you for just... A wonderful group of people that we get to hang out with every Tuesday, every Monday, on Sunday, and the wonderful church that we all call St. Andrews. We pray, God, that as this Christmas season comes, um, you know, now and in the next couple weeks that we'll still be celebrating Christmas, Lord, we pray that we would stop each day to remember exactly what we are actually celebrating we thank you, God, for this gift, the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, a gift that there's no other gift that could ever come close to. We are grateful, Lord. We thank you for the reconciliation to you through your son, Jesus. We pray that you would hold us all close. We pray, God, you'd keep us healthy and safe. And we pray, God, that for all the prayers, the joys and concerns that are on people's hearts, that they haven't lifted up to us today, that your Holy Spirit, God, would lift them to you right now. We love you, Lord. We are very grateful as we await the arrival of your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Bye, Go with guys God, everybody. And girls. Merry Christmas to all. Lots of Christmas messages here to the group from uh -huh. other group people. That's nice. Okay. Adios. Bye-bye.